Hi everyone, it's Caroline Honorian. Welcome to this new episode of the Phenomenalist podcast. Today, I am very happy to have Lausanne Collective with us. I discovered their work through their online platform. I was immediately enthusiastic. At the core of their work lies the ability to articulate the, the struggle for emancipation in nuanced and complex terms, examining both Chinese and American imperialisms, while questioning Hong Kong's actual state of being and political movements and tactics. They also discuss collective and global emancipation in a way that allowed to imagine internationalist solidarities, as we'll discuss today, and that never forget about people's struggle in mainland China. This is all the reasons why I am very thankful for Eli and JN to be with us today. Spaces that are completely segregated and racialized. What it is like to be you know, queer and Arab and how difficult that might be. Or how do you negotiate that? The destruction of the social cultural worlds of black people, of African people, those who were here before. Which kinds of bodies get disciplined and regulated through discourse, but also in actual practice? Hi, I'm Magrida Waku. I'm Caroline Honorian. And I'm Leopold Lambert. This is a Phenomenalist podcast operating in parallel with the Phenomenalist magazine that engages with the politics of space and bodies. Our hope is to provide a useful platform where activists, academics and practitioners build solidarities across geographical scales. Each episode, we invite someone we admire and learn from their experiences, research and struggle. So thank you so much for agreeing to talk to us. Uh, I feel like your collective is fairly new. We often talk about like the umbrella movement in relation to Hong Kong. So I wanted you to I wanted to know if you could explain to us in what context Lausanne Collective emerged. Yeah, sure. Um, so our collective emerged uh, in the summer of 2019 anti-extradition bill press, which as we know um, a controversial extradition bill that would have opened sort of the floodgates with the legislative and criminal justice systems between Hong Kong and the People's Republic of China which is uh, opaque and uh, has a record of uh, abuse and um, so our group came together uh, mostly uh, through talking online talking um, from previous um, connections uh, when people were involved in other uh, publishing and organizing projects. And um, we really came together um, interested in the idea of decolonization. And one of our first projects was to basically create a reading list and uh, to identify resources and previous kind of histories of struggles, uh, both in Hong Kong and beyond, that dealt with the idea of decolonization alongside self-determination. So. Um, Uh, having done that, um, one of the other uh, moments that uh, our group really consolidated around uh, what what would be our current project is the July 21st uh, attacks in Hong Kong, which is basically um, something like around 700 uh, armed men, uh, basically mo uh, tribe mobs, uh, had attacked uh, indiscriminately pro-democracy protesters um, in this neighborhood in Hong Kong with uh, little to no police um, response. And so that was sort of a moment that uh, we had also coalesced around 
and then thereafter we created um, a website. We identified um, kind of an editorial organizing uh, mission, and then um, that's where we are today. And so uh, one of the core questions coming from these two um, sort of jumping off points, um, the focus on decolonization and also um, the sort of urgency of the moment and on the ground in the summer 2019 protests had been to answer the question or to explore what it means to take Hong Kong as a position of critique. And when we say critique, we also mean not only critique of Western imperialism and Chinese imperialism um, as a whole, but also critique towards sort of dominant relations of uh, power in Hong Kong and how those powers and uh, the elites that uh, inhabit that strata had long profited and um, I guess uh, continued this tradition um, or this uh, lineage of imperial and colonial relations uh, in Hong Kong. So um, there are several avenues of um, intervention or I should say um, amplification that we had identified from the get-go and uh, one of which was sort of the long sort of um, history of struggle in Hong Kong uh, that existed, uh, like you said, beyond the 2014 umbrella revolution struggle toward a really sort of a long history, a long duration of uh, leftists participating um, in uh, movements for liberation uh, against capital and against empire. So um, since 2014, sort of what was widely perceived as um, uh, sort of failure of uh, the umbrella movement, there had been a rise of localist and nativist politics that had pinched upon anti-mainland uh, Chinese xenophobia uh, uh, and also, um, I guess, continued toward uh, forming a an imaginary of what it means to be Hong Konger along lines that are um, pretty much, um, I guess, uh, in continual uh, marginalization of uh, communities um, in Hong Kong that don't fit the sort of um, expectation or the image of um, a basically a bourgeois uh, bourgeois uh, uh, elite uh, cosmopolitan Hong Kong identity. And so that was one point at which we were uh, wondering if our project could um, be a point of continuation of uh, previous leftist work in extending cross-border solidarity with uh, Chinese workers, um, with uh, labor movements, uh, with students, uh, uh, et cetera, um, in mainland China. So um, that was really important to us. In addition to sort of um, the ongoing sort of right-wing turn of the movement, and uh, uh, some would say, I guess, the co-optation of the decentralized uh, form or structure of the 2019 protests uh, toward, um, I guess, uh, radical tactics that had uh, amplified or had built upon these xenophobic and nativist and, um, I guess, nationalist ideas of um, Hong Kong identity. And so um, here again, we uh, we were wondering if we could um, we could extend horizontal solidarity with other contemporaneous struggles across the world, despite um, the sort of global right wing turn toward, um, uh, I guess, exclusionary tactics and uh, kind of uh, 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 movements that are conversely built upon uh, logics of uh, division and, uh, I guess, conflict. And um, so all, all of that um, focus on solidarity, I think, really came down toward an observation of what it means to build upon a decolonial politics in the context of Hong Kong, but also um, 
the broader Sinophone world, uh, PRC, Taiwan, etc. So um, a lot of the popular parlance um, of mainstream pro-democracy protests in Hong Kong um, centers around the idea of self-determination. But um, such an open-ended idea uh, is um, always, I guess, open toward different uh, interpretations, different um, ideas of um, what sort of like pre-existing forms or, uh, I guess, uh, like the nation, like nation state, or um, uh, independence, or etc. Uh, so how, so I guess how um, we we were thinking as a collective, um, what it means to really decolonize um, the idea of um, self determination in Hong Kong, um, and to that end, I think we're still uh, undertaking this project. It's such an open ended question, and mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much. So to continue on that very global scope that you have, I think the members of your collective are based both in Hong Kong and like in the diaspora. Like you both are in LA right now. Could you tell me how this, uh, like if and how this inform your activism? Yeah, for sure. So I, I think I have kind of two answers for this. One being you know, the material concern about cybersecurity and our, our necessary use of technology to, like, stay connected and, and to organize across the world. Um, so, for example, our, our members are scattered across, like, both coasts of North America, um, Western Europe, Hong Kong, and Taiwan. So, you know, we find as many different media as possible to securely do our work. Um, so, you know, the, the most obvious recent example of this is the controversy with Zoom. Um, so just very quickly, you know, whereas... Uh, you know, I'm sure you've heard that the company shut down activist accounts that were holding a Tiananmen Square massacre memorial. And so we, you know, we recently held two webinars and, and some of the audience were, were kind of like, why are you still using Zoom? Um, given the, the kind of political action that the company had taken. Um, and so, you know, just, just kind of based on the fact that we had to have live uh, language interpretation, which was, you know, it's a built-in feature for, for Zoom. We're like, Uh, this just happens to be the best option for us, this particular event, but we're still trying to find ways to, to work around it and not have to use it. Um, but especially since our work can also be considered, you know, quote unquote, sensitive. Um, and also because of our collective values and like anti-surveillance and tech activism. So, you know, that's one element of how, you know, tech plays into our, our role as like a collective of diaspora folks. But Um, you know, my second answer is, I guess, has more to do with the, with conceptualizing the category of like not being in Hong Kong. Um, you know, our core mission has always been to build international left solidarity, which, which Ellie just kind of touched on. Um, and, you know, so this building the solidarity, um, includes kind of introducing the international left to a broader audience in Hong Kong, but also like platforming the very unique, but marginal left in Hong Kong to the world. So, you know, as diaspora, quote unquote, sometimes, you know, that has been tough or it's been viewed with some suspicion uh, by critics, both outside and in Hong Kong. Um, But, you know, diaspora can mean so many things. Um, It can be used to discredit those who left, um, but it's also not necessarily accurate or, uh, you know, politically neutral either. So, for example, as scholar Shumei Shi notes, it, it can often work in concert with the Chinese state. Um, to shape an overseas population for obedience or political belonging, right? So if the if the CCP or the PRC, uh, you know, claims the Chinese diaspora in Canada, for example, 
um, that can kind of like create this political obligation to, uh, you know, do what the state says. Otherwise, you're you're considered, you know, an enemy of the state or something like that. Right. So there's so many different valences to this word um, that I think we've as a collective have developed kind of like an interesting, difficult relationship to it. Um, for me personally, the more helpful understanding of diaspora is not, you know, it's not the classical unidirectional yearning for home. Um, it's not the bi-direct, it's not even the bi-directional fluidity of like flexible citizenship of like being able to go back and forth. Um, but for me, it's, it's really about like migration that's shot through with material, economic and political consequences. You know, sometimes it's by choice. Sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's, you know, a result of privilege, but sometimes it's not. Um, and so there's, you know, then you can bring in so many different categories into that as well, uh, like economic, uh, immigrant, etc. Um, so, you know, I would say these historical circumstances of migration really circumscribe our political work, um, but it also pushes us much further to make connections that aren't often made um, in Hong Kong or between Hong Kong and other sites. Like there's obviously a natural affinity between Hong Kong and Taiwan. There's lots of exchange going on between that historically and, and now. Um, but, you know, for example, last year, some of our members ran campus events in New York um, to connect international students from the PRC to Hong Kongers um, to, to kind of like talk things out at the height of the protests um, to see how we could like sort through heavy feelings, but also kind of like misunderstandings about what's going on. Um, and those were, you know, really difficult sessions where, where people felt, you know, lots of different feelings. Um, but I think in the end, people felt it was valuable to, to just have that space to feel like, you know, semi-safe to talk these uh, issues out. Um, we also hosted an event with Puerto Rican scholars and activists in New York um, to discuss how the non-sovereign aspect of our two sites, um, you know, kind of being stuck between colonial powers um, can really shape new political imaginations beyond the nation state for our for our pol uh, political work. And then this month, we held two webinars with uh, Chinese and Black activists to unpack the difficulties and possibilities of Afro-Asian solidarity, and then also um, exchanging tactics and strategies across like different movements, space, and context. Um, and then, you know, just last week, our members interviewed uh, a Lebanese activist who you know, they, they approached us. Um, I don't know if you've uh, heard of this person or seen his writing, uh, Joey Ayub. Um, and he was saying, you know, I've learned so much from Hong Kong and I, I just want to talk with you all about it. And it was just this really fantastic interview that like moved very uh, beautifully across space and time. So I feel like that's how diaspora informs uh, our work in so many different ways. Mm. Because talking about this diasporic work and like this cross-national kind of work, it really like makes me wonder about the translation question like right now. Because I know for us of the Phenomenalists, we always have these talks because we are based in Paris and in Copenhagen. We, all, we also work with people based in Australia, but uh, we publish in English. So, but there's really a question, like a pressing question about the how to translate so and to share like all the struggles on the writing around the world. I know that your site has a lot of translations. Uh, I also noticed that you were writing and supporting Yuli Rizvati, who was like an activist migrant worker 
who was deported partly because she was translating, if I remember correctly, information to other workers that didn't really, that did, couldn't like grasp, um, like to grasp uh, the organization from some other protests. So I was wondering if you'd like to tell us something about the politics of translation in the context of your collective or more broadly in relation to Hong Kong. Definitely. Um, so translation really, I think, um, was an integral part of our project from the very beginning. Um, in the 2019 struggles, one of our first projects as a collective was to collectively translate news media and sort of uh, kind of reports on what's happening in Hong Kong toward an Anglophone media context. And um, from then, from that onwards, I think translation has become the spaces of our commitment to international solidarity um, via a very careful and um, locally attentive treatment of uh, marginalized and suppressed perspectives that um, not only is uh, pretty much unheard of um, in the global um, media or discursive context, but also actually on the ground in Hong Kong itself. And so um, when we say um, in our tagline for our collective, when we say amplifying decolonial left perspectives from Hong Kong, we take that in a very literal manner and, and translate um, a number of texts outwards and inwards um, for multiple audiences. And so um, when I say translating outwards, um, a lot of the voices that are already long subdued in the Hong Kong context um, by, I guess, mainstream pro-democracy movements uh, uh, and also, uh, I guess, uh, subdued in the international context um, due to, I guess, um, differences in language and differences um, um, in sort of uh, the proximity toward uh, mainstream uh, ana analysis of um, what is the left in its original writing or ana analysis. And so um, holding them both together on the same platform, I think, is a, um, is a very uh, laborious, but also uh, a crucial uh, type of support that we can provide people in Hong Kong uh, who are uh, continuously um, uh, turning out these really brilliant um, pieces of writing uh, and uh, I guess uh, uh, but without having uh, but without having much support um, on uh, on both the local and international level um, but our work of translation I think also happens um, inwards in terms of uh, our translation of resources from struggles across the world uh, we have been working on um, resources uh, in prison and police abolition and um, this has been this has not been, uh, I guess, uh, a very richly developed history of struggle in Hong Kong, but um, a lot of openings toward abolition had definitely been um, present in the since the 2019 struggles and in, in the face of police brutality. And um, this is one of the things that we do in translation. We try to make available resources that have actually worked for, for example, black activists asking for dismantlement of uh, the systems and the structures that enable these uh, cycles of dispossession and uh, of uh, brutal, um, I guess, uh, uh, brutal uh, suppression. And we make it available toward um, the Hong Kong struggle as well. And um, yeah, so things like resources on um, labor organizing, uh, rent strikes, uh, tenants organizing, etc. Uh, we're we're very interested in making this conversation a global one. So, um, well, uh, I guess another thing about translation is that um, for me, it's not really just a means to produce um, texts and knowledges for consumption um, on a media level, but actually um, for us working with a range of um, really, truly brilliant 
translators and editors. Um, it's a practice that's rooted in dialogue with voices that um, have not been given their due um, with, uh, I guess, people who actually are themselves um, who like the translators and editors who work with us, they are themselves from, from the communities that we read about that are under threat. And so um, for me, this is uh, translation isn't really um, an exercise or a performative um, act of um, proving our authenticity, of proving our uh, legitimacy in the global uh, discourse context in terms of um, how how we know that um, the left in Hong Kong exists. How, how do we know about like what the left has done for Hong Kong and for um, international solidarity, but it's a broader, I guess, a broader uh, process of knowledge production that um, actually is uh, really um, one of uh, one of, I guess, the political commitments that we make is to um, amplify these uh, existing perspectives, make them connect with other struggles around the world, and so um, rather than um, sort of rather than and uh, I guess so as as a last um, wrapping up point on translation, um, I guess despite language and um, problems of location and against like sort of the logic of border practices, I think um, our collective uh, and its work on translation is sort of um, sort of uh, opening up toward uh, a practice that um, so um, I guess despite language and uh, location uh, difficulties and challenges and sort of against the logic of bordering practices, um, I think the work of our collective and translation um, is an insistence on the fact that um, trenchant criticism and uh, imaginative proposals for the future of our shared struggles um, can be found um, everywhere, despite limitations, um, limitations in um, uh, language, limitations in um, diasporic location. Uh, so yeah, that's, that's pretty much all I have to say for translation. Mm. Sorry, that was a little bit long. No, no, not at all. It's really interesting to us. I think that the struggle for Hong Kong, especially in the West, obviously, like self-determination is often, often reduced to a fight against Chinese or for your Nazism. Uh, could you expand on what it means for you to take an anti anti-colonial and anti-imperialist stance? Yeah, definitely. I mean, this, this has been kind of at the forefront of uh, our work and also the forefront of our minds <laughs> for quite some time. Um, so, I mean, you know, the basic facts are many people will dispute whether or not we can call China a colonial power, um, or an imperial power, either one. So the PRC, um, you know, the, the irony is the PRC has disavowed the decadence of the Qing empire and, and said, you know, we're the, the revolution, we're, we're, uh, throwing away all this bourgeois decadence, et cetera, but they'll be happy to maintain the continuity of its quote unquote territorial integrity. So, you know, they're in the most recent history is like uh, President Xi has been more than willing to kind of commodify Chinese culture, broadly speaking, in order to kind of like export and sell that abroad. Um, but then, you know, still have this kind of like revolutionary, uh, trot out this revolutionary rhetoric as well. So, um, you know, simply put, the PRC didn't exist when Hong Kong was seized by British imperialists. So there is no real return to the PRC. And this is kind of the, the foundational paradox of Hong Kong, you know, after 1997. It's just like being returned to a colonial power that, that didn't exist um, when, you know, it was stolen. So, um, yeah, modern Hong Kong has always been passed between alien imperial powers uh, for its entire existence. So it, it really gets into the hornet's nest of arguing with people who believe China is 
you know, a socialist and be an, an anti-imperial and anti-colonial force um, since, you know, they supposedly do something to challenge the United States on the world stage, right? So, uh, you know, these, these folks, some people call them like tankies or red nationalists, um, and they will happily support any regime across the, the world who even expresses like a modicum of anti-U.S. sentiment. Um, so, you know, Lao San's position has always been that we don't have to choose one state or imperial power over another. Um, you know, basically, we recognize that multiple imperialisms exist. Uh, that is both the U.S. and China though, as global superpowers right now. Um, and the media and many in both um, the Chinese and U.S. state are trying to establish this kind of new Cold War narrative um, where we have to pick one state to support with with no alternatives otherwise um and many people uh commentators but also you know um in the state themselves that they're just trotting out the specter of war uh particularly u.s war against china to kind of add urgency to this binary sorting um and you know saying you necessarily have to stand against uh the u.s and in order to stand against the u.s you have to stand with china uh, which we're, we're, we see as kind of this false binary, um, because this necessarily funnels all of people's political energy for agitation into the state, um, as opposed to more, you know, insurrectionary or community-based direct action um, against the real problem of global capital, uh, which, you know, the U.S. and China are both intimately intertwined in. It, it doesn't really make sense to support one against the other, because they're both um, using the system to exploit and, and profit, right? So, um, for example, we've been really insistent on being critical um, about Chinese debt imperialism and capital, you know, a capitalist resource and mineral extraction in many countries in Africa. Um, there have been plenty of pushback from folks um, in those regions. Uh, this year, for example, Kenyans fought against the building of industrial plants um, that were the Chinese industrial plants that were polluting and destroying local ecosystems and the economies that depend on them, right? So these are the types of like local scale, um, you know, direct action and resistance that people who want to only operate at the new Cold War level will will gloss over because it doesn't it doesn't help them to support China, right? Um, so you know, many of us in the collective are anti-state. Um, and we see this kind of Cold War binarism as increasing the power of the state to wield violence against the most marginalized. So then, you know, what Ellie um, was talking about earlier, what we advocate for instead is connecting across borders, um, either with activists and workers in the PRC um, or across other movements around the world to form transnational power against global capitalism that way. Um, so, you know, that's where, that's exactly where our anti-colonial, anti-imperial um, and anti-authoritarian politics come into play. Um, you know, forming these alliances, um, reaching out in this way isn't straightforward or easy in any way. Um, and often actually can be quite dangerous when it comes to connecting across the, the Hong Kong PRC border. Um, but, you know, we, we know that change always comes from below and there's no way to reform or to ask nicely for a state to stop. Um, is exploitation or violence. And, you know, part of this is is really kind of refusing pragmatic politics of, like, trying to play real politics with the U.S., um, 
trying to outmaneuver uh, China by working with U.S. Congress. Um, you know, it, I, I understand that many folks in Hong Kong are are trying to play that game, um, and I understand why they are. But you know, depending on the U.S., uh, has historically proven to lead to betrayal. So uh, we're trying to look at it from a, a very a much broader perspective. Um, and, and see that, you know, Hong Kong really is, uh, as, you know, in the Hong Kong Human Rights and Democracy Act, which was passed, and then now with, with President Trump saying that he's going to, um, you know, decertify Hong Kong's special status uh, in the, because of this ongoing trade war, and then now the national security bill that China is um, going to impose on Hong Kong, um, you know, Hong Kong really has no agency. That's, that's really the core of it. Um, and it's just being used as a bargaining chip. And so that's why we're trying to, yeah, just form the alliances across borders um, and not play this game, this political game. I saw on your website that you had like some articles about the Black Lives Matter movement. Of course, like with this global movement, we have like the same kind of protests here in, in Europe. Uh, we've seen all these criticism and articles about rioting and looting. Uh, I know for Hong Kong, like this really, like the the whole image about the umbrella movement and the protest, the peaceful protest tactics, that tactics is really strong. But um, do you think there's really been a shift since that movement and since what is happening from like 20, 2019 and 2010, 2010, 2020, sorry? Um, I know that you, you've talked about the 1967 riots on your website. Um, is there something you could tell us about Hong Kong's struggle in relation to the, to the police and the politics of rioting and looting? Yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, Hong Kong is such a, it's an extremely over-policed uh, territory. So, you know, it's, it's one of the most heavily policed regions per capita in the world. Um, it has the highest percentage of incarcerated women per capita in the world. Um, so this is a society very much used to considering police, um, you know, with very heavy scare quotes here, Asia's finest. Um, it long, you know, I think folks last year were already kind of expressing sentiments early on um, in the movement when police violence was just starting to ramp up of like, you know, we there used to be such a, a good relationship with police, like what happened? Um, and, you know, I think now those those um, sentiments have completely changed, right? Now there's the calls to disband the police and uh, very, very popular, you know, across all sectors in, in society, right? So, um, in, but I think we can definitely draw this back to the 67 riots um, as kind of like laying the groundwork for a lot of these dynamics that we see today. Um, so, you know, around this time, it was like the rise of industrial manufacturing in Hong Kong, um, symbolized by like plastics production and, you know, labor unrest caused by these increasingly exploitative working conditions, um, were seized upon by the, uh, Chinese communist party. And then it was like combined with this very strident anti-colonial rhetoric. And so those strikes and labor unrest were put down by the Hong Kong police very brutally. Um, and, you know, they would, the, the Hong Kong police would uh, earn the designation royal uh, from the Queen for, for putting down uh, these, these labor uh, protests. Um, and, you know, eventually the, this unrest kind of, 
devolved into like a bombing campaign that ended up killing um, young children and, and other innocents because it was just like uh, package bombs left at, at random doorsteps and stuff like that. So, um, you know, it, it's a very fraught history and there's been kind of like endless studies on this. So I won't like rehearse all the details. But I, what, you know, what I want to highlight from that history is that, uh, it, you know, the police proved uh, in 67, the police proved their originary function, which was to protect capital accumulation and tamp down on unruly laborers. Um, and, you know, that was the, the foundation of the police in Britain as well, right? It was like during the Industrial Revolution to control unruly laborers and protect capital accumulation. So, uh, you know, uh, in Hong Kong, the police force was created um, at the very beginning of the colony to mirror the the London uh, police force in order to keep like this highly migratory maritime labor force in check. Um, and so, um, you know, in, in 1967, during the riots, they uh, invoked the Emergency Regulations Ordinance, uh, which was basically martial law. Um, it gave police like really broad powers to use uh, use force and to search and arrest uh, without warrant. So, you know, most recently we saw that the ERO invoked in 2019, uh, last year, to ban the use of face masks um, in order to tamp down on the ongoing protests, which, you know, of course, it just inflames people's anger uh, invoking that. But I think what that shows is uh, that colonial policing tools were happily taken up by the CCP in governing Hong Kong. Right, the, all this anti-colonial rhetoric, being anti-British, um, all that stuff, they, they were still happy to take up these tools uh, precisely because they needed to safeguard capital um, as kind of the connective tissue between these two colonial regimes. Um, and it couldn't be clearer um, than, you know, the white British police superintendent, Rupert Dover, um, in Hong Kong, he led many of the police assaults on protesters in, in 2019. So he was really kind of like, the, the face of that, um, this colonial heritage of policing. Um, and then, you know, in 97, the riots, um, it, it kind of formed this important psychic backdrop for Hong Kongers as well to believe in the ability of police to restore safety and to prize the stability of capitalist production. Um, you know, given this history of labor unrest and, and how it turned into this violent bombing campaign, I think for a lot of people in Hong Kong, the police stopping that was, it, it created this foundation for trust in the police. Um, and I think, you know, just now is, is when it's starting to, to crumble for a lot of people. So I think, you know, this puts rioting in the current protests um, in a different light. Um, it makes it, to me, it makes it much more radical. For, for a society used to equating capitalist order to safety and stability, um, you know, yeah, rioting is, is really kind of, um, breaking the mold. Um, and so in, in the most recent protests, um, you know, folks ado adopted the notion of decorating, uh, meaning kind of like smashing and uh, vandalizing um, PRC owned businesses and banks as a destructive form of economic protests. Um, you know, they would target, uh, yeah, those companies that had uh, ties to the PRC or were owned wholly by PRC folks. Um, and so this, this, this decorating, uh, this smashing and um, rioting was the flip side of what's called the yellow economic circle, um, which is the, the kind of like spend your money at 
um, Hong Kong owned businesses or restaurants. Um, and so it's, it's interesting how these two kind of, uh, have an interplay or, or they, they do different things, but both targeting the, the economy. Um, in terms of looting, I think this is, it's a really interesting question as, you know, I saw in your question that you're kind of tying it to what's happening in the U S. Um, I think that the contexts are quite different in that sense. Um, you know, the, the Western media has been quite, um, adamant on trying to like portray, um, Hong Kong protesters as like very polite or very like, um, you know, oh, they're not looting. So that means that they're worth supporting. And obviously this is like a very classed and racialized um, lens through which to view unrest. Um, and, you know, I, th there wasn't wide scale looting um, in the Hong Kong protests, but th that's not to say that it's any better, right? There's just different conditions under which they're operating. Um, but, you know, I am reminded of what like uh, Guy Debord said about looting, um, you know, as, as direct action, um, it, it was, it's a natural response to the unnatural and inhuman society of commodity abundance. Um, and he kind of connects this to the police as the, the protector and servant of the commodity. So I think, you know, the way in which, um, black protesters in the U S are, are discredited, uh, by the media is directly connected to this, you know, to the commodity and to the police, um, in Hong Kong, I think there, there's a much different context with um, how the police uh, and media try and discredit the, the protesters, and it's not specifically through the lens of, of looting. Yeah. So last question was, so that's, okay, I think, okay, it's more of, of a comment, but I think the reason why I'm so, I was so interested in that 1967 riots and it, in this colonial context is because one of my parents comes from like this island called Guadeloupe and we had like some riots and like a massacre in, in a really similar setting, like some workers who refused to go, like who protested for their wages and the, and the police committed a massacre against them. So that was a note that, you know, it's like, and I think it ties to the last question, which is we have like this whole uh, anti-colonial history that Hong Kong seems to be often absent from. So I was wondering what it meant for you to have, to write about this history and like to kind to, to kind of envision a, a future now. And if you could tell us about the ways you are thinking on building solidarities in Hong Kong, China, and throughout the world. Sure. Um, I think that it's not a coincidence at all that Hong Kong has often been absent from these mainstream histories of anti-colonialism and uh, I think I I think it's borne out in many different ways, and um, uh, certainly in much of the post-colonial discourse, and uh, I guess also the visual media culture surrounding this discourse. Hong Kong has always been pictured and imagined as this um, state of in-betweenness um, that's constantly uh, sort of situated, uh, I guess, uh, in relation to uh, larger powers. Uh, larger regimes that have always controlled um, the way that it's run, the way that um, it's uh, the way that uh, people in Hong Kong can, uh, I guess, determine their own path forward. Uh, certainly, I think um, many of these many of these imaginaries are tied toward um, 
a temporal uh, emergency context that Hong Kong is always thrust under the sort of time limit of 50 years of the one country, two systems in which the sort of Western capitalist order would remain untouched for 50 years after the 1997 handover from Britain to China. I think that also creates this, uh, these moments of uh, disappearance or these, uh, I guess, uh, anxieties of um, erasure that uh, actually uh, has determined much of the position of Hong Kong in uh, kind of the uh, larger histories of uh, anti-colonial, post-colonial struggle. And so um, what I think what we're doing here is not really to re-entrench these ideas of harm and trauma that have always uh, uh, encapsulated um, the place of Hong Kong and the struggle of its people, but to think about what it means to write a history and like write an unfolding history um, at, in this moment of constant crisis. And so this reminds me of um, the post-colonial scholar Homi Baba and his foreword to uh, Franz Fanon's um, 86th edition of Blackskin's White, uh, Blackskin White Mass. And um, he says uh, in the sentence, the state of emergency is also always a state of emergence. And I think we at Laosan, we take this uh, idea of the state of emergence pretty seriously. And we we use this moment of rupture to sort of both, uh, like Gianna was also talking about, both stand upon like ongoing and existing um, uh, movements uh, of struggle uh, against capital, against empire, but also use this rupture as a way to open up towards new avenues of resistance and new forms of international solidarity. And I think, um, when writing this and organizing around this uh, unfolding history, uh, we are we are uh, demanded to do two things, and uh, one of them is sort of to intervene into the uh, tricky politics of comparison. When uh, when in any given uh, time and moment, uh, two or more sites of struggle are looped in together, uh, we're sort of um, using this. Uh, careful attention and critical engagement with Hong Kong's uh, history of movements against colonial uh, coloniality that um, we, we're, see, we're sort of uh, trying to uh, imagine and to organize around uh, solidarity that doesn't move towards a flattening kind of homogeneity or sameness between adjacent struggles, but um, calling for instead a critical entanglement with movements around the world. And um, so this is one of the things that um, I think Jan was already talking about uh, last year when we were organizing a series of dialogues um, and writing about them uh, with Puerto Rican activists in the context of the Ricky Renuncia protests uh, and, and through this dialogue exploring what it means to, I guess, um, produce a subjectivity that isn't tied toward dominant ideas of sovereignty. And so um, this series, uh, Non-Sovereign Revolutions, uh, place Puerto Rico um, activists and Hong Kong activists in exchange, um, sort of talking talking a, a little about the mutual turn toward decentralization in both movements, the uh, sort of the coloniality of uh, debts and how debt extends imperial relations, um, even without, uh, I guess, uh, sort of even after uh, any given uh, uh, any given date of like official decolonization and the role of feminist struggle in these sort of broad-based uh, movements. And so it's interesting for me to learn from this exchange last year that um, both Puerto Rico and Hong Kong had been in the 60s left off the UN um, so-called decolonization list uh, of like non-self-governing non uh, entities. And 
Um, and that's what I mean when I say it's not a coincidence that um, Hong Kong, or for that matter, Puerto Rico and a number mm-hmm. of other non-sovereign sites uh, have been left out of mainstream histories of um, anti-colonial struggle. And um, so uh, these things like uh, these like official narratives of decolonization um, uh, from the 60s, third world kind of liberation across the world toward even the current moment in the 2019-2020 protests, um, we think of we don't we, we don't we, we think of decolonization as uh, something that extends beyond those uh, historical moments that have been marked by um, uh, very kind of uh, very constructed senses of temporality, very constructed ideas of transfer and uh, exchange and uh, loss and failure. So um, that's one thing that we think about when it comes to sort of the question of doing solidarity in a critical way and to call for entanglement not as a means of uh uh not not as a means of analogy per se but as a means of learning from each other uh amplifying uh voices from both struggles and so um this also happened i guess um earlier in 2020 we produced uh, a body of work relating to the coronavirus uh crisis around the world and I think Jen already talked a little bit about this. And um, one of the things that we did was to um, really use this moment to um, reaffirm that um, writing this history, writing this unfolding history also means um, reaffirming our uh, our resistance against multiple imperialisms uh, unapologetically and look at all of these uh, sources and practices of uh, deprivation and dispossession, um, not only um, individually, but also through each other and at the same time. And so um, in the context of the um, uh, Hong Kong mainland solidarity um, uh, organizing that uh, we were trying to do uh, in April, there had been uh, a wave of, I guess, uh, anti-Black, uh, racist, uh, xenophobic um, actions against uh, African migrants in Guangzhou, which is a really big city in the PRC. And they had been forcefully evicted, they have been uh, barred from services, they had been forcefully uh, uh, tested for the coronavirus uh, under uh, invalid grounds. And uh, that had been sort of a way through which we um, tackled at the same time a long history of anti-blackness in the PRC, but also um, as a way to highlight the uh, incredible uh, wave of mutual aid projects uh, happening in China. And uh, we, we sort of this is something that we do also for um not only um uh as like a as like a singular moment in in history uh, uh through the pandemic but also something that um in hong kong uh, a lot of our actually um existing uh existing i guess uh, uh marginalized communities they also face this sort of uh need to um this need to uh, really enc- uh, encounter and to resist multiple sources of extraction and control. So um, we have a we have a huge body of work um, uh, since 2019 on the struggle of migrant workers in Hong Kong. And uh, for example, uh, one of the things that we we approached was the issue of uh, and the plight of Filipino migrant workers in uh, in Hong Kong. And by focusing on this, we're not just sort of centering or uh, singling out uh, this particular uh, uh, situation of harm that has been thrusted upon um, this huge population in Hong Kong um, as a way uh, 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 per se, but um, 
it's a way to also shine a light on the abuses of U.S. imperialism, U.S. militarism, in both the Philippines and uh, and uh, also uh, in Southeast Asia at large. And so, a lot of these, um, a lot of these uh, simultaneous sort of um, encounters with uh, multiple imperialisms, uh, we see this. Um, we we use these sort of um, different moments and different sides of struggle as a way to. Um, uh, think about uh, not only comparison, but what Hong Kong can do to triangulate or to refract um, these moments of um, uh, imperial encounter of uh, of when different state powers uh, uh, actually uh, produce a specific conditions of control and domination um, in in places that are small and places that are deemed minor and insignificant in the face of um, kind of normative structures of um, community. Uh, like the state, uh, like the nation. Uh, and so, yeah, uh, when we think about building solidarities throughout the world, from Hong Kong, from the PRC, uh, this is the sort of stakes that we're riding on. Thank you so much for being with us to today. <laughs> Thank you for the amazing questions. <laughs> Thank you.